Well, good morning. Turn with me in your Bibles, please, to Matthew's Gospel this time, and chapter 7. Matthew 7. As you're turning, I just want to say again a hearty thank you to Pastors Daniels and Robinson. Very grateful for the opportunity to be here and speak to you all. This conference is one of the highlights of my year every year. I say that seriously. It starts with the beautiful drive from western North Carolina into Tennessee, which is just gorgeous, therapeutic for me. And then it continues, of course, with the good preaching and the good fellowship at this conference, and also uh, the connections that God has put together between us. That's part of the fellowship, of course. And uh, I got to thinking, you know, this conference has really helped me through the years in my understanding of the kingdom, kingdom truths, and uh, I feel right at home here in the company of heretics. <laughs> I'm sure I'm one of the bunch, so <laughs> at least that's the way some people look at us, right? All right, Matthew 7, I'm going to read verses 15 through 23. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits you will know them. Verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. This text, of course, is part of the Sermon on the Mount. And as Jesus closes the message, he warns of the tragedy of living lawlessly and hearing the verdict, depart from me at the judgment seat. Terrible words that all of us as believers should dread to hear. I titled this message, Depart From Me. Now perhaps you're thinking, do these words really apply to believers? Well, the answer is yes. As we shall see in the message, it is critically important that we preach this text within its broader context. And what is the context? Well, we know it's the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. And according to chapters, uh, chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, the Sermon on the Mount is for believers who are desiring to follow Jesus in discipleship. It's not a message for those who are unbelievers. This sermon has nothing to do with soteriology, the doctrine of salvation from hell. It has everything to do with mythology, to use one of Marty's terms, that is the doctrine of rewards given to those at the judgment seat who follow the path of sanctification and discipleship in this life. The Sermon on the Mount, in a nutshell, is about how believers qualify to inherit the kingdom of the heavens, which is the ruling realm of the overall kingdom. I believe that all saints will be in the kingdom, in some aspect of the kingdom, but only faithful saints will be privileged to, give, to be given access into the heavenly ruling realm of that kingdom, that is the New Jerusalem. All others will be in the darkness outside of that realm. Keep in mind that the New Jerusalem is described as a very bright place because Jesus is there. There's no need of the sun there, for it's bright and glowing. Anything outside of that realm, relatively speaking, is darkness. And so those believers who are in the dark part of the kingdom, relatively speaking, well, they have earned that by how they've lived their life rather than living for Jesus and having the privilege of being in the kingdom of the heavens. 
That's what the phrase here, I believe, in verse 21 is all about, the kingdom of the heavens. Now, the immediate context of our text is verses 12, 13, and 14. Let me read those verses briefly. Therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Verse 13, enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it, because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. Verse 12 is about living out the golden rule. Well, that's obviously for saints. Verses 13 and 14 are about the importance of choosing the narrow gate and following that difficult path, which is the road less traveled by children of God. And why is it less traveled? Because it's hard. It's costly. It involves persecution. It involves suffering. It involves foregoing many of the pleasures of life. Nevertheless, it leads to life, abundant life now, and the reward of eternal life in the future. Well, in contradistinction to that narrow way and difficult path is the wide gate and the broad way, which is totally contrary to the other. These are easy. They require no self-sacrifice, but they lead to self-destruction. Now that's one bookend of our text, depart from it. But look at the other bookend, verses 24 through 27. Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew, and beat on that house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them, will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand, and the rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. And as children we would sing, a wise man built his house upon the rock. You know the song, and uh, some good theology in that song, because it's right out of the scriptures, of course. But I wonder how many realize that it's the bookend, one bookend, the other bookend being the narrow gate difficult path bookending if you will our text this morning depart from me in these verses verses 15 through 23 of matthew 7 if you're just coming in jesus warns of two pitfalls that trip up unwary christian travelers on the road of life and cause them to pursue that wide gate and broad path rather than the narrow gate and the difficult path. And those two groups, I'll give you the names or the descriptions up front, are the teachings of false prophets and number two, lawless living. Those are the two things that could potentially trip you up and cause you to fail in your Christian life rather than be victorious, and as a result, hear those words depart from me. We're going to examine these two possibilities, or these two uh, problems, pitfalls, if you will, in the Christian life that would like to get us off the right path. Let's see what they are. First of all, false prophets. Look again at verse 15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Now this raises an important question, and I'm sure you've considered this before. Perhaps your pastor has pointed this out. Does this mean that by inspecting someone's behavior, we can determine whether or not they are saved? Many times I've heard someone say, oh, I doubt that so-and-so is saved because, well, they sure don't act like a Christian. There's just no fruit there. I've also heard the opposite. Oh, so-and-so must be saved because look how nice they were to me. I've heard that said many, many times. Do you know there are very moral people in life who can do some very nice things for you and they're not believers? And do you know there are some very wicked living people who have believed on Jesus Christ for eternal life? <laughs> so this is not a gauge. We are not to be fruit inspectors. 
Did Jesus intend that we should pronounce folks unbelievers or unsaved because of their bad behavior? Well, no. Only God knows whether or not someone has believed on Jesus for eternal life. Now, certainly a Christian ought to behave <laughs> and live obediently under the Lord, but it doesn't always happen that way. It's not our business to inspect fruit in, this, in that sense of the term. We must understand these words in their context. By their fruits you will know them. And what's the context? Well, Jesus is providing a litmus test for determining whether religious teachers are true or false, not for determining whether people are saved or not. It's important that we catch that. False teachers could have fine-looking leaves, we might say, and bark, and even flowers on their tree, but these are all the ornamental aspects of the tree that can easily deceive an onlooker. The key is to analyze their fruits. And what does Jesus mean by fruits? Well, I like what the commentator John Gill says about it. Quote, By fruits are meant not so much their external works in life and conversation. For a false prophet may so behave as not to be discovered thereby. And false teachers among Christians may have the form of godliness and keep it up, though they are strangers to and even deny the power of it, but their doctrines here are meant, and the effects of them. Did you catch that? It's not even necessarily their outward behavior, though sometimes we see the outward behavior of false teachers, but you don't always. It's their doctrines, their teachings. And we do have scriptural substantiation for what Gill has just told us. In Matthew chapter 12, if you would hold your place here in chapter 7 and turn over just a few pages to chapter 12 and find verse 33. Jesus is again speaking. He says, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or else make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for a tree is known by its fruit. Root of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things, and an evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth evil things. But I say to you that for every idle word men may speak, they will give account of it in the day of judgment. Notice verse 37. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. False teachers are characterized by false words, or we could say erroneous teaching. Now to be sure, they are going to preach unscriptural doctrines. And behind the scenes, their lifestyle may also be wicked and unfruitful, but we're often not privy to that part of their lives. We're exposed to their teaching. They're called wolves in sheep's clothing because their teaching devours and causes saints to self-destruct. It's not edifying. It's not helpful. It doesn't encourage believers to walk with the Lord. It encourages them to self-destruct, to get on that wide path that leads to destruction. We are, Jesus says in chapter 7, to beware when we discern that a religious teacher's doctrine and the effects of it are in opposition to Scripture. In that sense only are we to be fruit inspectors. Never are we instructed to analyze someone's behavior in order to determine whether the person is saved or lost. Keep that in mind. It's very important. We determine whether or not someone is saved or lost by their verbal testimony. If a person has believed on the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation, and by that, I think that means, because there are lots of different definitions, but I like the simple definition, if a person that believes that Jesus Christ gives eternal life to those who believe him for it, they are saved, according to the Word of God. But we are to examine the teachings of teachers and see if their teachings are in line with the scriptures. 
And Jesus in Matthew 7 uses the analogy of good trees versus bad trees and good fruit versus bad fruit, fruit contrasting different types of plants and produce to identify the work of false teachers in contradistinction to those who teach truth. Grapes do not come forth from thorn bushes. You know that. Nor do figs come forth from thistle bushes. You know, I have some acreage in North Carolina, and I'm constantly cutting back those sticker bushes. You know what I'm talking about? They are a pain in the neck. I mean, they grow everywhere. Part of the curse, no doubt. <laughs> well, I don't ever expect to find figs on those bushes. Nothing profitable there. Kind of like kudzu vines in the south. You, you expect to find anything profitable on a kudzu vine? <laughs> no, we hack it back. Well, we should not expect that false prophets, who are likened to bad plants, that they would produce quality, useful fruit. Teaching that's consistent with the word of God. The fruits produced by their so-called ministries are bad, Jesus says, typical of their art condition. False teachers are a serious danger and a threat to discipleship. And Satan uses false prophets to sidetrack Christians onto that broad way that leads to destruction. You say, Pastor Hollingsworth, am I subject to this? Any believer is. Wherefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. We can be subject to false teaching. But as children of God, we're admonished to beware of this false teaching by inspecting their fruits, their doctrine, its effects. Nowhere, I say it again, nowhere are Christians instructed to analyze the fruit, that is the behavior or works of other professing Christians, for the purpose of pronouncing them saved or unsaved. I hope you catch that. Leave that business to God. He declares in Jeremiah 17, verse 10, I, the Lord, search the heart. Now look at the end of these false prophets, verse 19. <coughs> Excuse me, we're in chapter 7, verse 19. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. God will judge them. Just leave them alone. Stay away from them. Let God deal with them. But beware of false prophets. By the way, I'm a pastor. I think you know that. And I'm amazed at how multitudes of Christians blindly follow false prophets. You can find them anywhere on television, which is quite easy today. Yes. Believers in Christ who ought to know better do get duped by wolves in sheep's clothing. And as I said, any one of us could fall prey to that. We should never have the attitude, I would never fall prey to that. That attitude of arrogance is setting you up for a fall. But it's a tragedy that so many believers do fall prey to false teaching and wolves in sheep's clothing. All I can suggest as to why that happens is because Christianity is full of immature baby Christians and or more mature Christians who have gotten proud and off their guard. And they're easily led astray, taken captive by every wind of doctrine. What does 2 Timothy 2.15 say? Be diligent or study to present yourself approved to God. A worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Studying the Bible is not merely a command for ministers of the gospel. It is for all believers. We're all to study the word. You should be able to instantly discern. Just by listening to teaching, you should be able to instantly discern whether it's right or wrong because you know the word of God. If you do not know your Bible, then you're likely to be carried away, carried astray. You will give an account for your laziness at the judgment seat of Christ. Now, I realize being carried away by the teachings of false prophets is not as likely for people like you, but it is possible. But now we're going to go some to the second part, which is even much more likely for people like you and me. 
We've seen the false prophets, the pitfalls of the teachings of the false prophets. Let's now examine the pitfalls of lawlessness. Incidentally, some commentators like to say the false prophets in verses 15 through 20 are the same as the lawless servants in verses 21 through 23. Are they the same? No. I believe there's a literary device used here that sometimes we refer to as an inclusio, kind of parenthetical. It clarifies that the sections stand alone, independent of each other. Notice in verse 16, you will know them by their fruits, starts the first paragraph. In verse 20, fruits ends that paragraph. It's an inclusio, a parenthesis of sorts around this section, and it divides it from the section that follows. Not to mention there's a paragraph division at verse number 21. Now look at verse 21. I'll read it again. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. In contrast to the deceitful, ravening wolves in verses 15 through 20, I believe these are sincere Christians and perhaps even preachers and teachers who are clearly not ravenous wolves. In fact, I think we'd be pretty comfortable around these people, at least to some degree. They say, Lord, Lord. And does not 1 Corinthians 12, verse 3 say that no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit? These men give a heartfelt confession of their salvation, their belief in the Lord Jesus Christ, and they call him Lord to his face. And because of their service for God, they expect to inherit the kingdom. Oh boy, do you see problems here potentially for yourself? I do for myself. I think sometimes if we're not careful, we think that because of our service for God, we should expect to inherit the kingdom. But sometimes we substitute busyness with actual servanthood. And by the way, Brother Leroy Barrett's message, God used it yesterday to drive a knife into my heart. Convicted me greatly. Oh, I need to be a servant, have a bond servant mentality. Thank you, brother, for that message. You know, we expect to hear well done at the judgment seat and rule and reign with him. And nothing wrong with wanting to hear that. <laughs> we should desire that. But could we be duped that we're going to hear that just because we're keeping busy in ministry? Now, I think that these folks in verses 21 through 23 are believers. Look at their claims. We've prophesied in your name. We've preached and taught in the name of Jesus. We've cast out demons in your name. We've done many wonders in your name. And the Greek word translated wonders is dunamis. Seems to refer to miracles. Jesus never questions any of their claims. I'm assuming their claims are correct. They did these things. And by the way, if these were unbelievers, they would never have been able to cast out demons. Or if they did, it would have been by Satan's power, not God's power. And I'm sure Jesus would have called them out on that. At least I would think so. But Jesus never questions that they've cast out demons in his name. Nevertheless, Jesus does deem them unfit for the kingdom. That is the kingdom of the heavens, the ruling realm of the kingdom inheritance they're unfit for inheritance on two grounds did you pick it up look at verse 21 they do not obey the will of the father and the second verse 23 they practice lawlessness that is they're lawbreakers they're not obedient to the Lord we could say they're licentious in other words 
I think this is suggesting that they will be in the kingdom, the broader kingdom, as all believers are in the broader kingdom, but they'll be considered least in the kingdom. Go over a page or two to chapter 5 of Matthew and look at verses 19 and 20. I don't have the time to preach this. It's a great text. Matthew 5, 19. Whoever, therefore, breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of the heavens. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of the heavens. The righteousness of the lawless servants in chapter 7 does not exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. They may keep the letter of the law, but they do not keep the spirit of the law. Oh boy, doesn't that describe much of legalistic ministry to which we've all been exposed? Outward conformists, but inwardly not obedient. Lawless Christians, again, I believe, will be in the broader kingdom, but only as subjects in the darkness outside of the bright ruling realm. They're not in the castle, so to speak. Maybe I could use this illustration. It's helped me. In medieval times, there were castles. And the king lived in the castle with all of his servants, family members, those who were close to him. A whole lot of other people lived in his broader kingdom, but they didn't live inside the castle. They lived outside the castle walls. And maybe once in a blue moon, they would see the king riding out over the drawbridge from a distance, and that's as close as they ever got to him. But they were part of his kingdom. He took care of them. He protected them. But those inside the castle had regular interaction with the king. They were in his presence all the time. And I liken the castle portion to the kingdom of the heavens, the bright ruling realm where Jesus is, where he will dwell with his bride and co-rulers. All the ones in the broader kingdom outside of the castle, well, they're in the darkness outside, relatively speaking. They're under the king's protection. They're part of his kingdom. But they're sure missing out on all the glories of the castle life. And thus the king will pronounce to those who are lawless and have to be on the outside, I never knew you, depart from me. Now, is Jesus condemning these folks to hell? No, that's not consistent with the immediate context. It's not consistent with the teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. It's not even consistent with the overall interpretation of Matthew's Gospel. This particular Greek word in chapter 7, the, the word depart, simply means to go away. Those who hear this verdict must depart. They must go away from his presence. In this context, it does not mean that they go to hell. It does not say that. If Jesus intended hellish condemnation here, he would have said so. Or he could have said so, but he didn't. Look again at chapter 7, verse 22. Many will say in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? Many will say to me in that day. What day? Well, it's obviously the day in which Jesus is judging his own, the judgment seat of Christ. For these people are begging for entrance into, that is, inheritance in, the kingdom of the heavens, the ruling realm of the kingdom. Do you know if these were unbelievers, they would be meeting Jesus at the great white throne judgment, which follows the millennial kingdom. And so it would make no sense for them to beg for inclusion in the kingdom of the heavens, the ruling realm of the millennial kingdom, for it's over by that time. How then do we explain the strong denouncement of Jesus in verse 23? 
starts out, and then I will declare to them, then or at that time, at the judgment seat verdict, Jesus will declare to them, I never knew you. The word declare here in verse 23 is the same as confess used elsewhere in the scriptures. Vine says here in Matthew 7, it means, quote, to declare openly by way of speaking out freely, such confession being the effect of deep conviction of the facts, end quote. Go over a page or two to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 10, and look at verse 32. 10.32 Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. The word confess here is the same as declare in Matthew 7, our text. Jesus is speaking here in Matthew 10 to his disciples. That's very clearly demonstrated. Look at verse 24. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. Verse 25. It is enough for a disciple that he be like his teacher. And you can even see in the verses following the ones I just read, he's talking to his disciples. And he says to his disciples, If you confess me before men, I will confess you before my Father. That has nothing to do with soteriology. It's all about mythology. It's all about rewards. To confess, by the way, is to agree with God. If you live in agreement with God by your life before other people, then Jesus will agree with you about your lifestyle before the Father at the judgment seat of Christ. I can picture it. Judgment seat of Christ. Someone stands before Jesus. Jesus shakes his head. He says, my child, you did not confess me before men. I will not confess you before my Father here in heaven. What a sad thing. But then another believer comes by and Jesus beams with joy. Ah, you confess me before men by how you live, how you talked in this world. Father, there's one that I want to have included in my heavenly kingdom as my bride and co-ruler. He or she confessed me before men while they lived on earth. Enter into the joy of the Lord. <laughs> what a wonderful thing. I want to hear that. Now let's go back to Matthew 7, verse 23. And let's understand what Jesus is saying. And then I will declare them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Here's what Jesus is essentially saying. I'm paraphrasing now. Lawless servants, I cannot confess you before the Father because your lifestyle is not in agreement with what I have taught in the Sermon on the Mount. Therefore, I must confess that I never knew you. Let me read to you what Vine says about the word new. In verse 23, quote, this word frequently implies an active relation between the one who knows and the person or thing known. In Matthew 7, 23, I never knew you suggests I have never been in a proving connection with you. End quote. Aha. Well, Jesus obviously knows who these people are. When he says, I never knew you, it doesn't mean, uh, who are you? I don't know who you are. That's not the idea. They're children of God. He knows them. He died for them. They believed on him for salvation. But he does not approve of the nature of their life and ministry. They are disobedient ministers. And that could apply to anybody, whether a pastor or evangelist or missionary or not. Disobedient servants. They've entered that wide gate and they've followed that broad way that leads to self-destruction. By the way, just to demonstrate this to you a little more fully, let's see how this same Greek word, new, you, 
Let's see how it's used in a couple of other passages in the New Testament. Hold your place in Matthew 7 and go with me to 2 Timothy chapter 2, please. 2 Timothy 2, give you a moment to find that. <clears throat> and find verse 19. Second Timothy 2 and verse 19. Nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands having this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. The context here dictates that the word know means approves. The Lord approves of those who are his. They followed his will. Approval is running through this text. Look up at verse 12 in 2 Timothy chapter 2. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. Well, the matter of approval or disapproval, whatever the case might be. Look at verse 15. Be diligent. King James says, study to show yourself or present yourself approved to God. A worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Approval runs all throughout this text. Thus, contextually, Jesus knows those who are his. He is in approving connection with them. That is, those who are studying to show themselves approved. Those who are enduring, persevering through the trials and afflictions and troubles of life. Responding like Jesus did to his sufferings. Maybe that's what Paul meant when he said that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable to his death. Oh, I want to respond to my trials and sufferings and afflictions like Jesus did to his. That I may know him in that way. That he may approve of me. Ah, that brings new meaning. Go to Romans 7, another passage that I think helps us to understand the meaning of this word know back in our text. Romans 7, and look at verse 15. Very familiar passage. The Apostle Paul in verse 15 says, For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what, for what I will to do, that I do not practice, but what I hate, that I do. The word understand is our word for know. Paul isn't merely saying, I don't know what I'm doing, like I have no knowledge of what I'm doing. He knows what he's doing, but he does not approve of what he's doing. That's the nuance here, as if to say, I don't get it. I don't understand it. Why do I keep living this way? And that's how the word know is used in Matthew 7, 23. Jesus essentially says, I do not recognize your lifestyle as valid. I do not approve of it. I never knew you. I was never in approving connection with your lifestyle. Now go to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. If you haven't been convinced yet, I think you will now. Though the others I think are compelling. 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and look at verse 3. But if anyone loves God, this one is known by him. Well, wait a minute. God obviously knows everybody in the broader sense of the term, and particularly children of God. But those who love him, he really knows. Why? Because they keep his commandments. They're in fellowship with him. Thus, Jesus is not talking about matters of salvation from hell in Matthew chapter 7. He's not saying that he doesn't know them because they're not God's children. Rather, he does not know them because they're not obediently following him. They're not loving him as he loves. They're not choosing to take up their cross daily and follow Jesus. Those servants in Matthew 7 who cry out, Lord, Lord, they are saved servants who have not lived or served according to the qualifications as given by Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus does not accept their lifestyle 
Thus, at the judgment seat, he will declare them unfit to rule with him in his coming kingdom of the heavens. And so the verdict will be, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. It doesn't say, depart from me. You're not a child of God. You're not a believer. You're going to go to hell. No, he's talking to believers. He says, depart from me, servants. You are lawless. The phrase depart from me really bothers some interpreters of this passage and uh, convinces them, anyway, to conclude that Jesus is consigning these wicked teachers to hell. But that's jumping to a conclusion, I believe, based on one's theology. And don't we often insert our theology in the texts? Oftentimes unwittingly. We must remember that these servants have lived disobediently. They're lawless. Have you ever known any lawless Christians? <laughs> it starts with yourself, right? There have been times in my life when I was a lawless Christian. And every day I struggle not to be lawless. I need the grace of God. I need the dependence upon the Holy Spirit to enable me to rise above that and live victoriously and not lawlessly. But I've known many Christians who were lawless and who are lawless. Well, depart from me. Go away from me. You're banned from my presence, Jesus says, in my kingdom. That ruling realm. You cannot be in the ruling realm. You cannot be my bride and co-ruler, you workers of iniquity. That's what happens to lawless Christians at the judgment seat. They're excluded from Christ's heavenly new Jerusalem, his city of reward. They have forfeited their privilege of ruling in the kingdom. They will be leased in the kingdom. They must depart from him in the sense that they will be in the darkness outside, living as mere subjects, not inside the castle. And what a tragedy. Now, who are these people? Well, I think this description here could include those who pervert the gospel of the kingdom in some degree. Those who do not live according to the kingdom way of life, as outlined by Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, notice I did not say that they're perverting the gospel of salvation from eternal condemnation. And we're not even referring to that gospel here. These prophets seem to have gotten that right. They seem to be believers. It's the gospel of the kingdom that they're getting wrong. And in our day, isn't there similar confusion about the kingdom? Mm. Well, first, there are those who are amillennial, who claim there's no coming literal millennial kingdom, but rather that the church of Jesus Christ is the kingdom of God on earth, and that Jesus is already ruling in the hearts of his people. His kingdom is... A present spiritual kingdom, they say, not a coming literal kingdom. And that's held by many of a reformed theological persuasion. Some others of a reformed theological perspective hold to post-millennialism, although that's not as popular. It teaches that Christians must usher in the kingdom by instilling Christian values in the culture. Jesus will return, they say, after a golden age in which Christianity prospers and things get better and better in the world. Well, that's working out real well, isn't it? <laughs> you know, we have to reject these teachings as erroneous, and I believe those who promulgate these errors will be dealt with at the judgment seat in like manner as these disobedient prophets in our text. There are, of course, also the charismatics of our day who are focused on doing mighty works in the name of Jesus. I don't doubt their sincerity. The very thing these disobedient prophets are claiming in our text, casting out demons, performing miracles. Many of them hold to something called kingdom now theology. They believe that the end time started when Jesus ascended into heaven. Sometimes they refer to it as already but not yet which means to them that the kingdom of God is already existing but not fully consummated. It's a bit different than post-millennialism in that they believe the kingdom is already here, but it will grow and become more powerful, not through ethics per se, like the reformers believe, but through Christians exercising the sign gifts and thereby demonstrating miracle working power to overcome the enemy. 
That's their spin on it. They say that Jesus lost control of the kingdom to Satan when Adam sinned, and the only way he can get it back is when kingdom Christians exercise miracle-working power and get it back for Jesus. Thus, they say, we should follow the latter-day apostles, and they call some in their church apostles so-and-so, and, -so, and uh, they believe those people are working miracles of greater proportions in Christ's day. That's what they say is the greater works. They claim that God wants all sickness to be healed, all demons to be cast out, all poverty to cease. And you know what that spawned? The whole prosperity gospel movement, which is erroneous. It's also spawned the name it and claim it word of faith movement. And we have one of those churches right in our town back in North Carolina. Here's a question I want you to consider. Are they believers? I think so. But they're in error regarding the kingdom and doing all kinds of outlandish things because of their wrong doctrine. They literally believe that the church will win back the kingdom and rule the world. These theological beliefs are widespread and they're pervasive and people are following along hook, light, and seeker. But I believe when they meet Jesus at the judgment seat, they will beg to be included in his ruling kingdom. But we did many wonderful works in your name. We healed people. We cast out demons, and he will say to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Say, well, I'm thankful I'm not in those groups. Well, let's bring it closer to home. I wonder what Jesus will say to independent fundamental Baptists who do not resort to Reformed theology or charismatism, but... And I know this because I was one for many years who misinterpret large portion of scriptures saying that those passages refer to heaven when in reality they refer to the kingdom of the heavens. Who assume that all Christians will qualify to inherit the kingdom because of their position in Christ. Who implicitly, think with me now, who implicitly condone licentious living by that theology because after all, we're eternally secure and we will all reign with Jesus. We'll all be rewarded in some degree, they say. Shame on me for following that path for so many years of my life. How I fear for my brethren who stubbornly refuse to even consider truth about the kingdom. I have very graciously tried to talk to some of these folks about it, and they just stomp on it. Not everybody. There are exceptions, but I've had widespread rejection. You have too. Now let's bring this even closer to home, because you say, well, I'm not one of those either. What about kingdom believers? Even kingdom teachers, people like us, could we ever hear the dreaded words, depart from me, I never knew you, I was not in approving connection with your life and ministry, yes, I think it is a possibility, how so, by not doing the will of the Father, by living lawlessly, that can happen to any one of us. Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. And it doesn't have to be a major fall off the map kind of thing where you disavow everything you've believed. It can just be a daily choice to take the wide path that leads to self-destruction. Ooh, I dread this. I know you do too. Here in the end, I just want to say, I never want to hear these words from my Savior. I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Do you want to hear that? Of course not. Well, thankfully, we don't have to hear those words. Thankfully, we can hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful in a few things. Now I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Come into the castle. Come into the kingdom of the heavens, that ruling realm. You can dwell there with me. Others will have to stay outside.
Folks, we must learn and teach and live his truth about the kingdom. To that end, we must, by God's grace, live out the principles in the Sermon on the Mount, amongst other things in the New Testament. How you doing with all that? You know, oftentimes I've heard believers say, boy, you know those passages in 1 Corinthians 6 and Galatians 5, and Ephesians has one of these texts, I think it's chapter 5, where it says, you know, fornicators, idolaters, and gives this long list of sinful people, shall not inherit the kingdom of God. And we understand that's referring to believers who could be disinherited from the ruling realm of the kingdom. It has nothing to do with salvation there either. But I often hear believers who quote those passages and say, I've done one of those things in the list. Does that mean I'm disinherited? And I say, you know what? My understanding is, first of all, we serve a gracious, merciful, loving God who forgives when we confess our sins. And he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And secondly, the tense of the verbs in those passages is if we continue in those sins. So if you've messed up, think of that horribly. I messed up, but God forgave me. And don't beat yourself up. Go forward in victory. Press toward the mark. Forget those things which are behind. Press forward unto victory by the enabling power of the Holy Spirit who lives within you. Call upon him to help you every day to live the Christ life. And I believe that as long as you don't continue in those sins as a way of life, and God has forgiven you for your past because you've dealt with it, that you can still go forward in victory, inheriting the kingdom. I could be wrong about that. Let me know if I am, but I just think that's the case, based on my understanding of those texts. So how are you doing? I hope you take these things to heart. Think about them every day of your life. That's what God wants us to do. Let's bow in prayer. Thank you, Lord, for the word of God. Thank you for these truths. I pray that we would be different people by applying these truths to our lives, that you would be glorified, and that we would not hear these dreaded words depart from me, but that we would be able to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. May that be the case with every person here. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.